Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. We are now coming to the end of another year. So what were the biggest stories in education in 2023? What stories didn't get as much attention as maybe they should have? And what should we expect from the coming year? To discuss these questions and more, I invited three education journalists onto the show. Matt Barnum of The Wall Street Journal, Goldie Blumenstick of The Chronicle of Higher Education, and Allison Klein of Education Week. Matt, Goldie, Allison, welcome to The Report Card. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thank you. Thanks. The big question right off the bat, your reporters, uh, what do you think was the biggest story in education this year? Allison, you go first. Okay, so um, I will say I am a tech reporter, education technology reporter. So I'm this. I may be biased, but I think the rise of AI was the biggest story of the year. Um, in particular, a the whole cheating issue that is something that um, every K twelve educator that I talk to is really concerned about. These um, chatbots can, you know, cook up a pretty factual essay on, say, the causes of the Civil War in seconds. Um, And obviously, teachers are worried about cheating. But I think what's even more um, interesting, right, is that ChatGPT can now pass every AP test. So what are we supposed to teach kids, right, in a world where so much can be outsourced to AI? Um, And also, AI has huge potential to just change teaching and learning and what that looks like. Um, So to me, that was the biggest story of the year. That was definitely on my bingo card. Uh, My quick question is, though, uh, how well do you think it's been covered, right? There's been a lot of hair on fire coverage. Oh, this is the end of education as we know it. Uh, I don't know. Have we not seen as much coverage on the potential benefits of AI or chat GPT? What do you think? So I've written a lot about that. Now, I obviously work for a trade publication with a, you know, educator audience. They want to know how this thing could make their lives harder, yes, but also how it can make their lives easier and better. Um, so I've written a lot about that, you know, because of because of the lens that I'm, I'm writing from. I think in the mainstream media, it's a little bit more alarmist, but I have seen and I think this is partly Khan Academy just has a really good press shop, uh, some some very positive coverage of um, Khan Migo, which is um, essentially a uh, like a chat bot. Yeah. And we had Sal Khan on in March. So listeners, if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it. Goldie, uh, you cover higher ed. What was the biggest story of the year? Well, I'm glad Allison said AI because I don't have to include that one, but it would. I do want to make sure we get a little conversation going on that as well um, in the higher ed perspective. But I would say more broadly, and I'm not even quite sure how to characterize this as, as a pushback or if just diversity, equity, inclusion issues are kind of at the center of a lot of conversations this year. But starting with the Supreme Court decision in June, um, undermining um, affirmative action by race at a limited number of institutions, let's point out that's where it mainly has an impact. But nonetheless, that spawned a great deal of pushback against efforts for diversity, equity, inclusion on campuses. It, it, it created a lot of political political attention on the issue, increasing, increasing political attention, let's say. Um, and I think finally, what we've seen in the last two months, there's also been a lot of questioning of those initiatives on campuses in light of concerns about rising anti-Semitism on campus and whether the traditional DEI um, regime, the thought thinking includes anti-Semitism and has, does it actually 
represent enough about sort of social justice on campus and is it really doing the job? So I think there's been a lot of dimensions to this sort of pushback on DEI. I don't know what a better word for it is because I wouldn't call it an assault. That's too strong a word. But certainly there's a lot of questioning of the of the way DEI has been operating on college campuses from a lot of dimensions. Um, I will say political interference in higher ed has also been a very um, big issue this year. And it's a lot of it's been focused on DEI. We Chronicle has a, uh, <laughs> they call it a DEI tracker. And we've noticed that there have been 40 bills introduced in 22 states looking to um, roll back DEI opportunities on, ca- on colleges, and seven of those have passed. DEI certainly seems to be the crucible of culture wars coming for higher ed. I don't know whether it's just a focal point or something in and of itself, but it's a huge story. That's a great word because it's actually like all roads seem like almost everything you talk about in higher ed right now, at some point it crosses that intersection. Yeah. That's right. And Matt Barnum, last but not least, discounting the two that have already been put out there, what's your biggest story? I think the the fact that K-12 schools are still recovering from the pandemic. If you go into a school, into a K-12 school, you won't, you know, the trappings of the pandemic are gone. You know, you won't see masks typically or only on a very small number of students, certainly no mask mandates. You might see some old sign about social distancing that no one follows. But the effects of the pandemic still persists. Students are still behind academically. There was this big increase in chronic absenteeism that Nat, you and others have have documented, and that has gone back down a little bit, but it's still much higher than before the pandemic. So schools are still digging out of the hole that the pandemic and perhaps certain public policy decisions have caused. So, Matt, what do you make of the coverage and how it meets public opinion on this? A lot of people are tired of talking about the pandemic. I know a lot of people when it comes to talking about the pandemic and schools are also tired of talking about it. But I think you're right. I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's a huge issue. What's it like for a reporter who's trying to both cover this big story, but also cover it for uh, pandemic weary readers? I, I guess I, I'm not 100% sure. I think there is still, there's still a lot of interest in covering it among reporters among about the, the effects of the pandemic and the persistent consequences. Um, and I think you just need to make it present tense and not just looking backwards is, I guess, the short answer. So those are our top three. But what are stories that didn't come up but are just below the first place ranking on your list? Anybody have a huge one that didn't get mentioned? Goldie? Yeah, I'll go first on this one. I think um, the growing financial pressure slash enrollment pressure on colleges, um, not the big wealthy ones and not the big state flagships. Those places are doing okay. But there's there's a we've called this growing divide. We've been writing about it at the Chronicle for 25 years. So the divide just continues to grow. It's not a new story. But I think this year the financial pressures are really starting to hit. They were a little bit um, camouflaged because of all the stimulus money that went to higher ed in the last couple of years. Um, and that's money's obviously not here anymore. I think we're going to see a lot more fallout from that and a lot more sort of maybe not hundred, you know, definitely not hundreds of college closures, not like that, but a lot more pressure on colleges to cut back on programs, hollow out some opportunities and that sort of thing. Matt, Allison, any others? Um, I would say the end of ESSER funding, that's kind of a look ahead story. 
But the feds gave a ton of, and this gets to Matt's point, right, um, aid to schools to um, get through the pandemic. Um, And next year really is pretty much the first year that those funds won't be as available or schools will will have really obligated them. And I am waiting to see what kind of cuts could come to, for instance, my son's public school. I think that school budgets are going to be back in the news likely next year. And that story has been pretty hard to cover, largely because there's so much lag between the actual data that we have and knowledge about where the money actually went. I'm I'm certainly not jealous of reporters who have to try and negotiate those stories when a lot of the data seems to be, you know, four months old. Is that an accurate description of the struggle that you faced? Yeah, I've been trying to figure out how much went to tech. Um, and that has been really hard to do other than through Education Week Research Center surveys where we can say X percentage of educators who were surveyed said their district spent money on tech or, for instance, mental health or social and emotional learning. Um, I feel like once those dollars go away, I feel like especially those two big areas, right, mental health and uh, and technology, um, might be ripe for cuts. Um, schools, for instance, really hired a ton of um, mental health professionals during the pandemic. And I, I'm, I'm wondering how many of those people will still have jobs. I guess we'll see. So what about underreported stories? I mean, there's a lot of ed coverage for people who read in this sector frequently, but some things probably deserve more coverage than they get. Matt, what would you say is a story that you think deserve more coverage than it got? Well, I'll I'll cheat and say a story that I I wrote that got some attention, but I think has has been missed to a large extent, which is the growing divide between public sentiment on public K through twelve schools and parent sentiment on K through public K through twelve schools. You know, the public has grown increasingly frustrated and dissatisfied with American education, and they see the headlines about learning loss. They see criticism about what is taught in American schools. And many people have treated that synonymously with what parents think or think that dissatisfaction is driven by parents' experience with their own kids' school. And that's not true. We actually see that parent satisfaction with public schools, parents who are in public, whose children are in public schools, has remained high and really hasn't gone down at all during the pandemic, which is a just a remarkable fact considering, you know, the huge upheaval um, that has followed. But the vast majority of parents, about 80% or so, say that they're satisfied with their child's education in, in public school. Now, satisfaction is a bit higher among parents who send their kids to private school, but even among parents in, in public school, it's still quite high. And I think this fact really has not been appreciated in, in the discourse. What do you make of that factor when it comes to pandemic learning loss? You know, you'll hear folks, Morgan Polakoff makes this argument a lot. We actually do have a problem with learning loss and parents, they're pretty okay with it. I mean, what do you make of that argument? I think there are a number of reasons. One, I think that parents are tend to be less concerned about test scores than pundits are, than journalists or think tanks people. Um, so I, I count myself of that. I, I cover test scores, but parents are, are just a bit less concerned about test scores. Um, I also think like 
from like a research perspective, we can study or researchers can study learning loss, like how much kids we would have expected them to learn if not for the pandemic. But you can't do that for an individual child. Right. And parents are seeing that their children are learning and are progressing in school. Now, again, in a counterfactual world, their same child in many cases would be a bit further ahead. But like you, you just can't see that on an individual basis. And then lastly, on an aggregate basis, the learning loss is, I would say, is very large, like unprecedentedly large. But on an individual basis, it doesn't seem as large. Like it's not like a typical student is falling from like the advanced level of performance to like the basic level. Like they're falling, falling from like maybe high proficient to low proficient. Some small number might be falling from proficient to basic, but most students are just, you know, still above or below average and just a little bit lower than they otherwise would have been. Yeah. It seems like every degree you pull it back from and aggregate from, the differences seem more dramatic and more crisis level. And and I think it's true on an aggregate level that it's very big, just like on a smaller level, it's just harder to see that. I'm not well steeped into the K-12 world, but one thing I've been wondering about in K-12 though also is like this absenteeism crisis. I mean, I know I heard a lot about it a year ago, I feel like maybe a little less this year. I don't know if it's lessened or if it's isolated in certain cities and like, I don't know, I mean, I'm not, I don't see a lot about that and maybe I'm not looking in the right places. Um, but is there something more to be done on that? I mean, I, I think it's well documented that chronic absenteeism is still much higher or last school year, it's much higher than it was before the pandemic. I don't think it's particularly well understood why. And I think, and you know, there has been reporting and analysis that have put forth a number of hypotheses. To me, none of them, none of those hypotheses has really been proven. And I think it's, you know, surely a combination of factors. We don't know the exact combination and we don't know the best levers to pull to get those absentee numbers down. So I think there is, it does warrant a lot more reporting and, and research. And is it also, I mean, this I'm actually asking selfishly because it's got an impact on some of the stuff I cover, but, you know, it, do we know where, is it at the K-6, at the higher grades? Um, and is it also, some of this is students who are not just absent, but like disappeared from the roles? Like, that's the part, so I'm still, I'd love to know a lot more about that. So get on it, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we are seeing it across the board, but certain disproportionalities and in some cases, I don't, th- I think in some of it might be students disappearing from the roles, but it's it's not just that, certainly. That would get my vote for the most underreported story. But Goldie, what do you think has been underreported in higher ed? I, I don't know if, I'm not so sure I'm prepared to say most because I have to think about that a little bit more. But, you know, that's much more relative thing. But I kind of feel like the impact on higher ed, in higher ed on things like the CHIPS Act and the infrastructure bill, that has the opportunity to change a lot in the economy right now. And particularly at the community colleges, it creates a lot of opportunity. And even there's like a big need for a lot more PhDs in certain fields. Um, and I don't know that um, even the impact, potential impact of that in higher ed has actually been recognized yet and sort of what that might mean. I feel like those things are have been sort of slow to roll out. So maybe it's hard to know at this point. But I know there's a lot of community college people who are sort of suddenly getting very interested in sort of helping create workforce related programs related for the CHIPS Act and to some degree, the Infrastructure Act and similarly for the four-year school. So the impact of that on higher ed and then into the economies would be one of, get at least one of my votes. Allison, do you have an entry? 
Sure. So I don't know how much of this is um, my now brand new public school parent hat, uh, as opposed to my reporter hat. But I actually, and also the fact that I used to cover um, federal policy so closely, but I think there's the data that you can get when you're trying to choose a school um, for your child. I live in DC, which is obviously a very robust choice district, um, is not great. Like even for as an education reporter, I mean, it really took 20 years covering education uh, to be able to tell if I if I wanted to send um, my child to a particular school. And I think a lot of the stuff I see um, other parents, you know, making decisions on is so window dressing, right? It's like facilities, um, test scores, but not necessarily looking at growth. I mean, um, I'll push back a little, Matt, when you said that parents don't care about test scores. If you're in D.C. or a, a high choice district, maybe they don't care about test scores, but they care about that great school rating or that school digger rating. I mean, that drives a lot of parent choice. Um, I feel like there's been... Since the pandemic, since ESSA even, there's been a receding of accountability at, you know, based through testing, right? Um, that's been going away, going away. Um, and we had a couple pause years during the pandemic. And I don't think we've figured out what to replace it with in terms of how you identify whether schools are doing a good job or not doing a good job, both for policymakers, parents, and just the general public, right? Yeah. Waiting in that data every day at work, I understand how opaque it can be sometimes. You all read your colleagues' work in the Ed Press. What's one article that you read this year that you wish you had written or that you admired a lot? Goldie? Yeah, um, honestly, it's one I didn't, I admire it. I don't wish I had written it because it's a very tragic story, but it's, and it's written not by professional journalists, but by the student journalists at the Daily Tar Heel in North Carolina. Um, after their shooting there in the summer, in August, they did that front page cover story, which many of us remember, which basically was just a, um, a word graph of all the heartfelt text messages students were sending to each other while the shooting was going on. You know, are you safe? Um, are you okay? Um, we love you. I'm so sorry this is happening. I'm reading a few of them here off my phone right now. Um, it was an incredibly great, smart piece of journalism that... Um, visually compelling and so sorry that those students had to write it. Yeah, that one was a gut punch. Uh, Matt? Um, I'll cheat a little bit on this and give two and also one a broad area, which is I, I think uh, Hannah Nattinson's reporting at the Post on book removals and other culture, so-called culture war issues in education has been really excellent. Um, so I, I can't, I wouldn't just name one, I'd say her, the, her whole reporting on that has been very good, fair-minded, revelatory, and um, yeah, learned a lot from it. Um, and my former colleague, Kaylin Belsha at Chalkbeat, her story on online tutoring in the company paper and the difficulty of enacting this vision of high dosage tutoring through a virtual tutor, I think was also excellent. Allison? So I'm going to cheat and talk about a story, a book that's coming out next year. Um, that my former colleague, um, Ben Harold wrote um, called Disillusioned about the changing landscape in suburban schools. Um, I've seen an excerpt. Uh, it's He's really good. Uh, it's really interesting look at um, how suburban schools kind of offer this promise um, of a better education for kids. 
And because of the changing demographics in part, right, and changing and challenges and whether these schools are actually equipped to deal with those challenges, they're not rising to necessarily rising to the occasion. Um, and, and sometimes they are. So um, I'm, I'm excited to, to read his book coming out next year. If I have to pick something from this year, I'm really impressed with my colleague, uh, Sarah Schwartz's coverage of the science of reading. Um, she really makes a very wonky debate um, accessible. All right. We usually have a part in the podcast called Grade It, but since all three of you are confessed cheaters, uh, we're going to cheat this time and do a section called Overreported or Underreported. I'll throw out a topic, ask one of you whether you think it's gotten enough coverage or maybe too much and why. Goldie, college presidents have been in the news a lot this year and not just with the recent round of congressional testimony. So college presidents, overreported or underreported? Too much attention. I feel like a lot of times the attention is misplaced. Presidents are ultimately responsible for the institutions, but they're not the only people that make these decisions. And I think sometimes they're made the, I mean, maybe not in the case of the presidents at the congressional hearing, they had those their own set of issues and how to respond to that political spectacle. Um, but I think in general, presidents are not acting alone. And so I think too much. Matt, science of reading. Um appropriate amount of coverage. I know you set this up that there had to be either too much or too little so that journalists were did it wrong either way. But I think it's been an there's been a lot of coverage on it. And it's been an appropriate amount because it's a very important issue um, that has gotten, you know, a lot of legislative and educational attention. It, It certainly crested this year in ways that it hasn't before. I mean, it's a standout story for this year, wouldn't you say? Yeah, though, of course, it was like it was a journalist, Emily Hanford, who got who drew attention to this issue. And it has it was getting a lot of attention, you know, had been getting a good amount of attention before this year. um, And it's gotten a lot of attention this year and and rightly so. Allison, the ESSER funding cliff. Too much attention or not enough? Not enough attention. It's just not something that we're talking about. It's not something that I think parents are prepared to see uh, coming. And I'm not even sure that districts are really prepared for it. And I feel like, you know, maybe we should have written more about it. I think it's also just structurally hard because there's probably less reader interest in this. You know, Ed Week and I and Chalkbeat and I, my first story at the journal was a, was about this, but it's just, oh, cuts are coming at some future date. We don't know how big it's going to be. Brace yourself. Um, there's nothing really you can do about it. <laughs> so get ready. <laughs> yeah, I think there's probably, having covered another fiscal cliff, right, because I'm, I'm this old, I've been on the beat for this long, I covered the uh, stimulus fiscal cliff that was coming back from the 2009 stimulus. Um, And, you know, I wrote stories. I'm not saying that my coverage was amazing or anything, but I wrote stories about how districts were preparing for it. We've done some of that coverage. And again, it's probably more of a trade paper story, um, but I haven't seen as much, definitely not in the, in the mainstream media. I don't think that's necessarily wrong though. Um, Like I wouldn't, write that story if I was working at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Um, it's just not for the a general audience. So probably an a- appropriate amount of coverage, given how hard it can be to write about. Um, but again, I think it's going to catch a lot of people off guard. Goldie, student loan forgiveness. Well, actually, that was an appropriate coverage story because court threw out the um, Biden's broad student loan forgiveness plan. 
And then in the meantime, there have been a bunch of other little smaller versions of the student loan forgiveness being proposed and pushed through by and be, and then some not passed yet, some some approved by the department. And I think that's a oh wait, we have to say over under. I'm going to say you're right. It's just about right. I mean, it's it's the news. Yeah, that's fine. Let me give you a follow up on that. How about the save plan, which has huge changes to income driven repayment over or under reported? I would say uh, for the maybe for the second year in a row underreported. You and I talked about this last year on the podcast, and I think we both agreed that this sort of the broad cup, the coming of broader loan loan forgiveness was going to be a fundamentally important thing in higher ed and kind of change the game a little bit. I and mean, obviously, it took a long, little longer for that to roll out, um, but I still think that's going to have very big implications. Could lead to more accountability measures by Congress if it when people start to see the price tag of that, um, but also could fundamentally change the calculation on how people pay for college. Allison, Moms for Liberty. I'd say appropriate uh, in general, but I think they are going to be. I think they're about to hit their own cliff, coverage cliff. It also doesn't seem like they're this huge grassroots organization that they were making themselves out to be. Um, I do think that they've been surprisingly influential. So maybe it's an appropriate amount of coverage considering um, how much influence that they, that they appear to have. But I think their influence is going to be on the wane. And I also think that, you know, some of the results in, in Virginia and other places show that this CRT... Um, argument that, you know, teaching that basically what we're teaching as a political issue is less potent than people had thought. Speaking of Matt, Florida and advanced placement courses, particularly African-American studies and psychology. That's an interesting one for me because I haven't reported on that, but it has gotten a lot of attention and it seems important. So I would say appropriately covered, maybe has maybe a little over covered because it's been, you know, has come to perhaps be a stand in for some of the broader debates about how race and racism are taught in schools. Um, So I hesitate to give a definitive answer without a more careful, rigorous and empirical analysis. So somewhere between appropriately and over reported. Fair enough. Goldie, a similar one for you. New college in Florida. Oh, um, some of the same issues that Matt just identified. I think as a, I mean, as a institution, overreported, but as a symbol, um, maybe underreported because it, um, although it, I don't think there's going to be 25 new new colleges of Arizona, Texas, you know, I don't think this is going to happen in a lot of other places, but I do think it does represent, you know, sort of the, realization of some people's dreams about, you know, big, you know, the new anti-woke university, whatever that means. Um, so I think as a, that as an institution under report, over-reported, but as an, you know, as a concern of, or an exemplar of a cons- political movement under, maybe underreported even. Allison, how about the rise of education savings accounts over the past year? Underreported, I think. It, it's, uh, broadening school choice to the extent that um, some states have or are contemplating doing. And I I will be honest and say this is not a story that I'm covering. I think it's a big deal. I think uh, shaking, I think anything that changes uh, the way that schools are funded 
and the amount of choice parents get, especially, you know, I've seen that parents don't, don't really know much, don't, you know, it's really opaque, right? We've talked about how opaque it is to be able to figure out what is a good school and what's not a good school. Um, so I do think this is a pretty interesting issue that I have not seen get the attention that I would have expected. Matt, the rise of homeschooling. Um, mostly appropriately reported. I mean, there's the Washington Post has done a number of stories on it, and they're all very compelling. So it's gotten a lot of attention from the Post, and they've leaned into it. And I think that that is smart and appropriate. Their stories have been really good. Now, homeschooling is the the trend is now going down for homeschooling. Um, it's, it's trending downward after a, a huge initial rise, um, but it's still much higher than it was was before the pandemic. And it still applies to a relatively small, you know, I, I don't know the exact number, but single digit share of, of students. So uh, appropriately covered by by one, you know, big paper. Last one goes to you, Goldie. The end of race based admissions. Mm-hmm. I think overcovered because it's not because it's not important, but because of the it's often been misunderstood um, in the coverage. So <laughs> overcovered by people who don't fully understand the impact of it, of the of the of the limits of the decision and what the what the you know people are people are taking that decision to mean it means the end of anything to do with equity or diversity, equity inclusion efforts, and that's to the degree that people are covering it that way, then it's been overcovered. If people are covering it correctly, then it's not overcovered. I'm just kind of curious because I've been reading mostly the mainstream coverage and, and not Goldie's coverage, which is what I should be reading. Um, can you tell me how you think uh, some of the mainstream coverage has been misconstruing it? Yeah, and I should admit I have not written almost anything about this because it's not my remit anymore either. But I'll, you know, my colleagues who you know well have because um, it deals primarily with it ra- using race in admissions, and it doesn't deal with whether or not campuses can have you know, diversity efforts on their campuses in programs on, on campuses for, for existing students, for example, or have they, they could have actually pipeline programs. There's a lot of that, that they just can't use race explicitly in their admissions process. And I just feel like that's not always widely understood. People just sort of say, oh, the Supreme Court outlawed affirmative action, which is not what it did. All right. Thanks for playing overreported or underreported. Uh, so I want to ask uh, more generally, pushing aside stories and talking about journalism more broadly, what's your take on the current state of education journalism? I, I mean, it seems to me that we've mentioned several times now that um, a lot of the white hot national political stories get a lot of attention. And that makes sense. But, you know, a lot of these stories are tough to cover from 20,000 feet nationwide and really apply more in local areas. So I I just wonder how education journalism works and how well it works, given the local variations that have to be covered. Any thoughts, Allison? Yeah, well, as a D.C. resident, um, I mean, I don't think that the Post's coverage of um, DCPS is as intense as it had has been at other um, eras. I mean, they have a great reporter on it, Lauren Lumpkin. Um, but I feel like that's one resource, right? And they um, really don't do a great job of covering um, education in the region. And, you know, I am a, obviously, a high, high choice district, as I've said before, and parents really need this information, and it just isn't there. Um, I think that in many ways, philanthropy has been propping up education journalism, both locally and nationally, and even trade papers like mine, right? 
Um, and I don't know how long that's sustainable. Um, so, but maybe, maybe very, um, I know folks who have considered going to work at some of these, um, and I know Matt, you came from Chalkbeat, like local, um, outlets that are doing some, you know, amazing coverage of their, of, uh, their areas and their cities. Um, and they're worried, okay, well, what if, um, you know, this major funder pulls out, like, is this job going to go away? Right. So we haven't, no one in journalism has quite figured out how to, make money in general. And education has always been just a little bit of a, um, at main, main papers, um, or like the redheaded stepchild, I think, um, of beats, even though it's so important. And even though I think there's a lot of, um, certainly parent interest in, in local schools. So I don't think we've figured it out yet. I don't know how revelatory that is. Uh, and it's a scary world. One thing I'll add, um, I think this philanthropy, philanthropy backed efforts in, journalism or have become very important to higher ed coverage. Um, there's a new organization that some of you may know called Open Campus, for, created by two of my former colleagues, and they help fund embedded reporters in local papers in Chalkbeat and a few other places around the country. And we're starting, some of the coverage that they're developing out of that is really, really great. Heckinger Report is doing a lot of, also philanthropy funded in a large degree, has also been doing a lot of great work and it partners with a lot of local papers. Um, I'll do a little plug for the um, student journalists, and I think I'm going to plug my own organization. Again, not something that I've been heavily involved with, but every year the Chronicle does this, you know, workshop for student journalists at campuses, and we bring, you know, 15, 20 journalists to the Chronicle and give them two days of intensive um, courses on how to cover higher ed in their on their campus papers. It's, you know, a little self-interested for us because when student newspapers start to turn up these stories, we can follow up with them and all that. But we also think it's something that's a give back to the community. I'd love to see other news organizations start to do this in other ways as well. Matt, you've been at the Wall Street Journal now for a bit, but earlier this year you were at Chalkbeat, which is a different model. What do you think? Education journalism is in dire straits because journalism writ large is in dire straits. Um, And education coverage is especially vulnerable because education is a state and local story. And local papers have been decimated. If you talk to an education reporter at a smaller, mid-sized, or even a large daily paper, like, say, the Chicago Tribune or the Los Angeles Times, you're going to hear a version of the exact same story, especially at small and mid-sized dailies. You're going to hear that if, if someone's been around a while, which they probably haven't, but if someone's been around a while, you'll hear, oh, we used to have seven people who covered education. Now we have one person who covers higher ed, K through 12, seven different districts in our region, several different universities. Oh, and they also cover crime uh, half the time. Um, And they're expected to produce X number of stories a week. It is that is just the typical experience of so many local education reporters. And they simply do not have the resources or time to do local reporting justice. Now, you have organizations like Chalkbeat, where I used to work, that are trying to fill that gap, and they're essentially replacing local beat reporters from you know traditional newspapers with philanthropically funded reporters, but Chalkbeat is only in several places. And so there are just you know local news deserts or school news deserts, and it is a, it is a very bad situation. So let me offer us a, a perspective, and I'd like to get your feedback on it. 
There's uh, one part of this that's just, uh, you know, well, there's a problem covering local variations in news because we don't have enough feet on the street to do it, right? Uh, It's just a manpower issue. But on top of that, uh, it seems like there's a lot of pressure to get to to stories that are just going to have enough buzz. So a story about DEI or Moms for Liberty or the president of Harvard uh, doing something that some people say is scandalous uh, may get more eyes and clicks, and therefore it's going to get more attention even where we have people on the streets. So it it seems like you get a lot more uh, smoke than heat when you're looking at some of these issues just because they have so much brand power. Is that a fair assertion about what's going on in education journalism? I don't know if local papers care that much about who the president, what the president of Harvard did. So I don't, I mean, I think Matt's identified a different set of issues that are much more on the, on the news because we're basically just talking about sort of one big source of education news that was an important part of education news 20 years ago. It doesn't exist anymore. I think that's a, you know, then, you know, the national press is sort of a whole different story, right? That's, and those, the national press was probably always obsessed with, you know, Harvard and the, you know, those kind of national sort of trendy things anyway. Um, the other thing that's sort of different in this equation to me, though, is like the number of policy shops and everybody else who are trying to have an influence on the pol- on education. I mean, when I started at the Chronicle years ago, um, there weren't, you know, we basically inter- talked about states, states were policymakers in higher ed. And there weren't that many other influential bodies. And now there's all these organizations, yours, New America, um, Urban Institute, um, the Koch-funded organizations, Heritage. All these other organizations are out there now trying to have their have an influence on education policy. And you can even see that when you go to education writers meetings and you see the number of these other groups that are also sort of at the table. So I think that's what's also changed in the mix, at least from the na- at the national perspective. I want to say one more thing about regional reporting as a national reporter. Um, if there isn't, if there aren't good regional stories, there aren't really going to be great national stories either, because that's what that informs our reporting is reading good local coverage and seeing trends across the country. Um, I did way more of that back when I first got to Education Week in 2006 um, than I'm able to do now. Yeah. And when I started at the Orlando Sentinel you know, a lot of years ago, we had an education reporter in every county. There were county school boards and we had one reporter covering every county school board. I think the issue you raised, Nat, is is a legitimate issue, but it's 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 separate from the main issue. And it's not a new issue. Like it, there's always been pressure to write stories that get more attention, more more readers. And and that's appropriate to a degree. And we just have to balance things that are buzzy, high profile versus things that we think are maybe lower profile, like the fiscal cliff, but very important. And we need to write compelling stories about things that that are lower profile, but important. So overall, do you think that education journalism does a decent job of balancing these two factors? I mean, it it turns out there are a lot of journalists. (laughs) There are trade publications, there's mainstream, bigger publications, there's conservative media um, that, you know, that millions of people read and watch that usually don't figure into these conversations. So it's very hard to make general statements. Um, And so you'd have to go look at it on a case by case and publication by publication basis. I would say all of this informs the point that Matt made earlier. Um, that, you know, people are upset with the state of public schools in general, but not upset with their not parents aren't unhappy with their own public school. I mean, that that's true of members of Congress, too, by the way. Uh, people hate, hate Congress and love their congressmen. 
Um, I think part of part of it maybe that the narrative, um, and I think this has always been true, as as Matt said, always been true that the narrative in um, on news stations, things like that, is is a little less detailed. Whereas when you're closer to the ground, you can get a better picture of what's actually happening. So looking to the coming year, who do you think will be some of the most interesting figures to watch or what are some of the biggest stories that we need to be prepared for? Allison? Well, I had on the top of my list the Esser Fiscal Cliff, but we've talked about that quite a lot. Um, I think uh, AI is obviously going to continue to be a story. Um, I think uh, mental health and social and emotional learning um, is going to be pared back quite a bit because of the, the coming fiscal li- cliff. Um, and I'm curious to see um, what the impact will be um, on kids. We're going into an election year, which sometimes means there's going to be a lot of sort of stupid stories um, <laughs> about education. Uh, so I'm I'm interested to see what will catch fire in that way. I mean, um, if we're looking at Biden versus Trump, which seems likely, right? I don't see education playing a lot in that election. I'm sure Goldie and Matt would completely agree with that. Um, and so would you, Nat. But uh, I mean, Biden really hasn't, like he hasn't really been out there on this. There's not, I, I wouldn't say education is an issue that I closely associate with him, um, other than obviously the student loan piece. Um, and then Trump, I mean, I don't know. I, I I don't think he's bringing Betsy back <laughs> if he uh, Betsy DeVos back. I don't think she'd come back if he uh, if he was were somehow uh, voted back in. So um, I I don't necessarily see the election um, the way that it sometimes does um, driving some at least some coverage of of what kinds of local stories people pay attention to. All right, Goldie, what do you expect from the coming year? Um. Well, I think the first problem starting like January 3rd, whenever campuses kind of come back, is just what's going to happen on campuses in terms of civility, in terms of the divisiveness that that has occurred, not just at the big um, elite campuses, but around the country. There have been a lot of incidents involving, you know, disputes with students stemming from the Israel-Hamas war. And I just feel like colleges are going to have to sort of figure out how to restore a little bit of civility to their institutions. That seems the priority one for most campuses at this point. Um, on top of that, I, I agree AI and chat GBT and all that. It's important. Um, for me, it's, you know, there's the teaching elements of it, but I think people, maybe it's time colleges start to think a little bit about the impact of that on society and the inequality that it might, inequality that it might sort of contribute to in society and in the workforce and how colleges might have to start to respond to that. <laughs> maybe that's not next year. Maybe that's uh, starting next year, but not necessarily next year. Um, Another interesting thing is, you know, the United States is about to celebrate its 250th uh, birthday. So, and I just feel like there's a lot of opportunity for colleges to think a little bit more openly and intentionally about, like, what does it mean to be a democracy in um, this time in our in our history, and how can colleges p- contribute to that? I think I'd love to see more of that. All right, Matt, what do you expect from 2024? Well, Allison's took all the good ones, you know, fiscal cliff as will um, probably get more attention because the rubber is is hitting the road and cuts will actually have to start happening or being prepared for likely. Um, I think I'm, I'm still very interested in academic recovery and the trends in chronic absenteeism, student achievement, other other measures of student and, and school well-being. 
Um, I'm interested in the state of the teaching profession. We saw, you know, an unprecedented increase in teachers leaving the classroom last school year. And I, you know, I'm, I'm curious whether that continues. I think the election is, you know, wh- how that will play out is more of an is, is something of an open question. I think Allison's right that more likely than not, education won't be a big issue. But like a year ago, I think we thought, well, maybe it would be a big issue. And it's plausible to me that education will come back um, in various in in various ways. And so it will certainly be interesting to to see how that plays out and then also how the election results might affect education policy uh, going forward. All right. Well, perhaps next year we'll bring you back to talk about it. Matt, Allison, Goldie, we appreciate your work. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk about this year in review. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Matt Barnum, Goldie Blumenstick, and Allison Klein. We'll include links to some of their work and the work they highlighted in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. <laughs>